0: because of disenchantment, we no longer see. And so what re-enchantment, the hope of re-enchanting is doing is that we would learn to see and enjoy the things around us as gift and then enjoy them in creaturely response. That's the idea of re-enchanting.
1: Hey everybody, Mike Erie here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad you are tuning in. And today, the guest of all guests Oh, my goodness. Now, now, it's not every day you get to interview one of your best friends ever in the world um, for a podcast. I get to interview Dr. Paul Gould, uh, affectionately known as Gouldy to those of us who uh, grew up together. Paul and I, so he is a professor of philosophy, he's PhD from Purdue, a big freaking deal, um, it, which he always reminds me about. And Paul and I met um, what was our first week, freshman year in college? Yes. yep. And then we, we lived in the same dorm. And, and then the last two years of college, we lived in the same house and he's just, you know, he's just been uh, an amazing, amazing friend. Uh, but it's tough not to make fun of each other. And so I'm here with Dr. Gould, and when I call him Dr. Gould, I can I, I kind of smile. Dr. Gould, say hello to the Vox audience.
0: Yes. Well, hello, everyone. <laughs> and Mike, it's so great to be. I'm having a hard time, uh, you know, keeping a straight face,
1: just listening to you, but it's great to be here. <laughs> I mean, Paul and I, so I'll, I'll try to limit the inside jokes. And I mean, oh, it's just so fun to, to be with but you. They're today. you're so good. They're, yes. Um, so, Paul, the one of the, I mean, besides just him being awesome and a, and a dear friend, he's written a book. Uh, called Cultural Apologetics that you've been working on for quite a while. And mm-hmm. it's just it's coming out um, the day after this will be released, right? March 12th. That's right. And um, which is 10 days before my birthday. So thank you for that.
0: <laughs> well, it's all about you, Mike. So yeah, yeah it it is. you
1: know what? and in, and and in fact, well we'll get to we'll get to the mention of me in a second. <laughs> um, so Paul, I just have I just have a couple couple general sort of observations um, about the book. Um, you quote. I mean, you're you're a veritable quote machine. I mean, mm. you're you're quoting just the entire world. You, you've got some C. S. Lewis quotes. You've got some Augustine quotes. Dallas Willard, Aristotle. You throw John Cougar Mellencamp in there, <laughs> Saint Thomas Aquinas, and then into that esteemed company. On page one hundred and fifty, <laughs> you quote yourself. So. <laughs> Can you just tell us a little bit about why why it was that you're the only one that has ever said that better than everybody else on page one hundred and fifty?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, I was actually thinking of quoting you, Mike, but I didn't want to prop up your ego so much. So <laughs> I just read that and I, I actually it was funny, somebody uh, tweeted out. the the quote that you're talking about on 150 i said where would i say that that's really good yeah
1: here here, yeah exactly so uh uh, as i've written elsewhere he says and then he quotes himself and footnotes himself i always
0: wanted to say that you know i've dealt with this elsewhere
1: so it's just an easy way to you know so that was so that was awesome way to drive book sales uh to the previous book Yep. and congratulations! Yep. This is number two, right? But you've edited and participated in others.
0: Oh, it's number ten, actually, Mike. But yeah, no, you know.
1: <laughs> okay. Editing a book does not count.
0: That's true. So that's it is number two that I've written myself. Yeah, I'm saying
1: and how and and I've written. I don't know. Let me think. Five. Nice. So, a doctor is in everything, Pally. All right. Let me yeah. I, as I read the book. Um, I found it interesting that there was no mention of streaking, and, and that seems incredibly relevant to the topic at hand. Do you want to explain that absence?
0: Yeah. Well, let's let's think about this. So I'm trying to think, Mike. How much you let me share here with our <laughs> freshman year in college? But uh, how cold? How was.
1: cold? How cold was it?
0: I believe it was winter, right? Oh, oh, and, it was winter. And it was late at night.
1: It was about three in the morning.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that that didn't make the cut. I think we had to cut it out. Oh, okay,
1: okay, yeah, because the that subtitle under
0: the foolishness of the
1: world. I think the, the, the this subtitle of the book yeah. is renewing the Christian voice, conscience, and imagination. So I, I consider streaking uh, to be part of renewing the Christian imagination. So <laughs> I, I just was wondering wondering why it, it wasn't there. Uh, congratulations on being Jewish. Yeah, I nice. had I had no idea. Either did I. Yeah, that was a fun story. Yeah. So anyway, way, way to yeah. wait like be of God's chosen people, man. Do you want me to tell that story so people know what we're talking about? No. Nope. No. Just, nope. just okay. congratulate. Let. Hey. Thanks. We're driving
0: them to the book. Okay. Well, it explains why I look the way I look, but you know that doesn't help your listeners. But yes, I am <laughs> Jewish and hairy, so now I
1: understand a little bit about why. <laughs> what was the best Pearl Jam concert you've ever been to?
0: Oh, yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up, Mike. Mm. Uh, the
1: only one I've been to, the
0: one that I went to with you. Yes! While we were, while we were in seminary. Yes! Yeah. Yes! Together. Yeah, so it's fun. Our our lives intersect. You know, obviously we met as 18-year-olds in college. Very mature 18-year-olds. They, they re Immature 18-year-olds, and they re-intersect years later uh, in Los Angeles, both of us going to seminary. And, of course, one of your great loves in college was 1990s grunge bands. And so... <laughs> You got into Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and so I figured, hey, I might as well, you know, have let's the experience.
1: Let's do it. Let's do here it in LA. So good
0: memories. <laughs> You're welcome. Now, it was part of my sanctifying process in seminary. So i gonna do that with
1: you. <laughs> oh, Goldie, it's so fun. So, so those were serious questions. Um, now let's get to the really serious questions. So, um one of the things about Paul and I so we both our faith really developed both in college we were part of a college uh, organization of of students and we um we participated in something called apologetics and we we learned it we did it that brought us to LA to get a masters in philosophy um, and apologetics, of course, was the, the sort of rational defense of the Christian faith, answering big questions like, "Hey, how can you trust the Bible?" and, and so on. Um, but but here you're talking about something called cultural apologetics, right? And what, what so what's the difference? Because you and I, would you first? The first question is, would you agree that the questions that people are asking are very very different? Um, thirty years later, then they were asking. I, I can't believe it's thirty years or twenty years. Uh, yeah. Is it twenty?
0: Uh, I don't know. It Was in nineteen ninety three? Right. Yeah.
1: So that's uh, that's ten years. I so ten <laughs> years ago, you were never so good at math. So. <laughs> <laughs> so how how have you seen this? Because the word apologetics almost isn't used or understood anymore. Yeah. In the in the Christian world, so what do you what are you meaning by it? How have the questions changed? And then and then, how is what you're doing different?
0: Yeah, so you're right. Apologetics is a word that in, in a lot of corners, it's not even a positive word. Uh, you know, right. it's, it, it, but the idea, at least historically, apologetics is just giving a defense for the faith. So it would be offering evidence, reasons to believe. It would be responding to obstacles to the faith and things like that. Um, but what's been interesting over the last actually probably since the early 2000s. And I think a lot of this has to do with the so-called new atheists, hmm. which are folks like Richard Dawkins, and who wrote a book called The God Delusion, or Christopher Hitchens, you might have heard some of these names. Yep, Sam Harris. Um, yeah, and so they're, they're sort of, they're not offering anything new in terms of arguments, but, but their rhetoric is basically ratcheting up. And one of the consistent uh, claims that they're making is that this God that we worship, the God of the Bible, is a moral monster or Christianity is evil or religion in general poisons everything. That was the subtitle of Christopher Hitchens book. And so I began to notice probably over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years that the objections are shifting and, and largely because I think to, to some of the things the new atheists were bringing up, um, you know, questions about the goodness of Christianity, questions mm-hmm. about, um, you know, is Christianity good for the world? Is, is Jesus really relevant? And so, so Cultural apologetics, of course we care about the mind, and and so you have to continue to give reasons for faith, and we want to argue for the reasonableness of Christianity, but what I'm realizing is that there's also objections and questions, is basically reestablishing the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and the Christian imagination, so that Christianity will be viewed as true. So that still matters, truth matters, but also desirable, you know, that is good and right. beautiful as well.
1: Yeah, no, I've noticed that. I've noticed that as well. The arguments almost being a Christian makes you a worse person. Yeah. Which, you know, is ironic given the greatest arguments for it in the early church weren't the intellectual arguments, it was just the right. lives of the the people who adhere to the teachings of Jesus, which is a, a fascinating thing. Okay. So you cut out just a little bit. You were saying you we, it's not just that we want to see Christianity as true. We want to see Christianity as desirable, as good for the world, as promoting human flourishing, correct? That's right. Yeah. So the idea is that it's not just true to
0: the way the world is, but it's true to the way that the world ought to be, right? That we have all these longings and these desires for love and justice and, and beauty and meaning and goodness. And Christianity satisfies all of those too. And, and that's the piece that I think we, as apologists or in apologetics, we, we don't tend to focus on that, but that's just as important because right. it gets to the, the desires of the human heart
1: as well. So, And I the, think that's so important today. There there also seems to be within the church, uh, and, and by church I mean the capital C collection of all believers. Yeah. Um, there seems to be a, a, a growing realization, and so this could be a, a partial objection to your project, that that Jesus doesn't really meet the longings in the, the way that often we talk about. You know, there's this whole, like, there's a big hole in your heart, and Jesus comes to fill it and when you when you you know are with him and and you've given your life to him, then you know your needs are met, your longings are fulfilled and i and and a huge part of the audience for this podcast and many others is the the idea that well we've we've given that a try, and it just hasn't mm-hmm. worked like mm-hmm. we're we're we we believe, and yet we're still longing, we're still empty, we're still looking for significance yeah and so so sidestep just for a second into that world because that's the world of a lot of our audience is we we call it kind of deconstructing their faith. Yep. Yep. So so how do we how do we claim that Jesus can fulfill our longings when so many Christians still experience um the longings, you know, that we say that Jesus fills. How would you yeah. do, just a couple of thoughts on that?
0: Okay. Yeah, let me let me give two thoughts. I, that's a great question. Um the first thing, think about think about the set of all of our longings, all of our desires, like an inverted triangle. So at the top, you have, let's just call it our surface desires. And then as you dig down to the bottom, you know, you you go, you have your deeper desires. And then then right at the bottom, I believe you have our deepest desire. And at the surface, it would be things like, you know, I love Twinkies or something. You do. You You do. You do. I do. You, you know that about me. Or I, or I like, you know, I want a car or whatever, or right. like a, a specific car. But then yeah. as you dig deeper, you know, you start to, the deeper you go, you start to get to natural desires. Um, things like our longing for justice or for, or for love or for beauty. And then right at the bottom, you have your deepest desire, which is this longing for God. And so I love how Augustine, who's this ancient church father, he said that our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. And so I think that that's, a helpful way to think about desires right and then and then the second thing though now i'm going to switch gears and i'm ultimately i think going to try to get to answer your question think of um okay so in this life uh you know we we begin with human nature as it is you know fallen corrupt uh bent our hearts are bent our desires are in the wrong directions and then we have this picture of human nature as it ought to be, right. you know, this vision of the good life and Christ would be the perfect picture of that. And then this idea of man is on a journey toward that end or, or purpose or telos. And in between human nature as it is and human nature as it ought to be, we're on this quest and that quest re- uh, requires that we would develop the certain kind of virtues to be a certain kind of person. Um, and so you have the classic virtues like courage and wisdom, and justice, and temperance, and then you have the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. So here's the interesting thing about that, and I'm actually going to try to get to your question. No, no, one no. One of those virtues, going, hope, is a virtue that we actually won't take with us in heaven. This is really interesting because hope, again, is a distinctly Christian or theological virtue, but it's the idea that one day all of our longings will be fully satisfied. That uh-huh. one day every deep desire of the heart will find his expression in the kingdom of God. And so to, to that really oh. good question, part of that is understanding that we're on a quest toward our highest good, which is union with God and everything that comes with that eternal life, the kingdom of God, you know, the, the resurrection of the body and all that, you know, so there will be a day, not in this world, there will be a day when hope won't be needed because all those would be satisfied. But until then, um, you know, we live with hope. And that's the great, the beauty of the Christian story is that we can actually have hope, even when we live in this world where all of our desires aren't ultimately fulfilled.
1: Like ah, does so that help a little bit? It does. It does. It does. So what would you say are those core, when you drill down all the way, what are the core yeah. longings? Uh, um,
0: I love what uh, C.S. Lewis said. Actually, it's in the chapter on hope. In his book, Mere Christianity, he said, If you find within yourself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Yeah. And when he says that, throughout his works, he references a number of things that can't be fully satisfied, although we have tastes or glimpses of them in this world. And they would be f- things that, are, that we yeah. philosophers might call transcendentals goodness, truth, and beauty. I think love, justice. Uh, All of those are are just above that deepest desire. And in fact, Lewis, in his chapter on heaven, in another book called The Problem of Pain, he talks about all of those as the things that you get when you get union with God for eternity. Mm. Mm. So I think I'm thinking of those kinds of things, things that we all long for, but ultimately they won't be fully, you know, uh, embraced until we're
1: with Jesus for so, pa- so part of the part of the work or the project of this cultural engagement yeah. is the recognition that behind all of the the superficial stuff and artifacts of culture, there yes. are these universal sort of human longings. Good and and no, no, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> good, Mike. Come on, Appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Paul. Um, and And so part of the the project in terms of of helping people the way the way I say it is help help people see the beauty of Jesus yeah. um, and that and that exactly right is the you know reimagining or the renewing of conscience and uh, yeah. imagination and so on um, but but that project is difficult. Um, when when you're not a student of culture, right? So if you're just uh, you live, going into Christian school, living in a Christian, you know, uh, dorm or whatever it is, uh, and nothing wrong at all with those things, but it, it, it's, you're not talking about building Christian silos uh, right. and running parallel universes. You're talking about getting to you know the culture and understanding its longings and so on. But, but I'm trying to get to this question. That was a very long introduction. I I the thing that re- most resonated with me is this concept of disenchantment and the concept of reenchantment. So, I want to spend a little time talking about part of the malaise of our world um is uh, is something you call disenchantment. And so could you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that
0: um kind of the first step in a cultural apologetics is understanding the culture that we find ourselves in. And so that's one of the big uh, ideas in the book is that we live in a disenchanted world. Yes. So what I mean by that is that our dominant way of perceiving is disenchanted. In other words, we no longer see the world in its proper light. So, So we use words like this to describe our world. We say that it's mundane or it's ordinary or it's everyday. Boring. But yeah, but that's not the way the world is, right? If you think about it, biblically, the world is deeply mysterious. It's beautiful. It's, it's to use the proper word, it's sacred or it's gift. And so, so the world actually isn't disenchanted, but the dominant way of perceiving the world is this idea of disenchantment. So it's been emptied of its magic. It's been emptied of, it, of the divine or the transcendent, we might say. Mm. And so everything is, you know, this low and lead in sky. Uh, and that's all there is to the world. And that affects everyone. It doesn't just affect those out there in culture. One of the big ideas is that, you know, it affects those of us in the church too, that we're largely disenchanted yeah. and that we need to re, I call it re-baptize, but we need to re, um, re-imagine a deep beauty and a, deep, uh, a sacred world that's gift and to begin to see the world the way that Jesus actually sees and delights in the world.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, but the idea, I mean, so you know this about me. And I, I'm weird. Um yes. for sure. <laughs> yes. But but I found like from a very, very young age, I was always drawn, like the Star Wars the Star Wars scene where Luke is kind of looking at yes. the twin sons with the longing and the, the music kicks up. Like that is one of the earliest things I ever got um in touch with as a kid. About wanting life to be different, wanting life to be better, wanting life to be more epic, mm-hmm. you know. And so the, the the idea of disenchantment really resonates. And and what do you think, you know what what has what has caused this? I mean, certainly there's a there's there, our scientific understanding has increased, so that seems to decrease the magic. But many would argue that's a good thing, mm-hmm. right? So so yeah. what, what do you identify as the the reasons the world have been has been emptied?
0: yeah I mean that's a that's a complicated question. It's a great question. there's There are philosophical stories that you could give, and I kind of unpack some of that in the book but but um the way that i to try to give it a simple answer though, I, I the ancients viewed reality in terms of a story, and it was a story of that begins with God, and then there's a wandering away from God and then there's kind of a turning back to god and they actually thought that that was the way that reality was structured so like for example think of genesis 1 you know in the beginning there was god perfect unity uh, the the triune god existing you know in, in a perfect loving relationship and that love bubbles out into this this creation of a good world you know with multiplicity and diversity and and gift and being and then you get to verse 26 of Genesis 1, and you have kind of the hinge. You know, su- suddenly there's this creature created in the divine likeness, humans. And in many ways, we're the, we're the hinge that is created in the image of God to be kings and queens. That's why I love Lewis and Narnia, you know, that we're, we're kings and queens of this world. Yeah. And we're priests and priestess. And our job is to basically re-gift all this diversity and multiplicity and beauty and life back to God as priests and priestesses and kings and queens of the world. And, um, oh shoot, what was your original question? I just got, got into the, the
1: gospel story. It's <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's <laughs> awesome. What, what has caused, what, what has oh, caused yeah. the world to be so disenchanted? Okay, good. Sorry. I got, got a no, little No, 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 no. Preach. 1. Preach. Yeah. Um, and so I think what
0: is so, so ultimately, you know, as we put theology, our theology hats on, you, you know, you can think about the fall and what happened there. Uh, but ultimately, I, I think it has to do with, with this idea in Romans 1 of suppressing the truth about God is kind of the first step toward disenchantment. And then from the, and, and really, as I love this quote in A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, it, it's a, the first sentence where he says, you know, the most important thing that about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. And then he says, if you get that wrong, everything else goes wrong from there. It's all mm. all wrong downhill. Mm. And, and in many ways, I think that's where it began for us is when we get God wrong, we begin to empty the world of its transcendence or its beauty or its majesty. And so we end in this secular, or I prefer the word disenchanted world that is emptied of the divine and things like that. So yeah, there's lots of factors. Again, I, I'll point you to the book for some of the philosophical ideas, but yeah. Um, ultimately spirit on a spiritual level I think it begins with um you know this this idea of emptying our world of of a view of who God is and then emptying the world of her majesty
1: yeah and, and it and it causes you know you you write it, it causes um the felt absence of God just yes. kind of an apathy yeah. towards spiritual things that and and tell the story about when you teach and you give reasons for the existence of God and that, and people yawn.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is something interesting. It just, in my own observations, I was as a grad student uh, in my PhD at Purdue university, one of the joys of being in a doctoral program is you get to teach. And so I was teaching intro to philosophy classes to undergrads there. And I'd spend, um, you know, six weeks giving the classic arguments for God and And and, and as well as the classic argument against God, namely the problem of evil and some other variants of that. And what what struck me was almost every semester, students would move from unbelief or, you know, agnosticism to belief in deity, to belief in God, because of the strength of the arguments. And of course, I believe that they're very strong, Um, the cosmological, the teleological, all these classic arguments. But what was really interesting, at the same time, they'd be like, cool, God exists, All right. Ask the beer and pizza. You know, let's, let's get onto my life. And it's like, they would add this, this entity to the furniture of the world, but they wouldn't connect it to the relevancy of their own lives. Uh And that's the kind of idea that, you know, we live in this world that we can imagine our lives as meaningful without any appeal to transcendence. So even when we fit God back in, he's kind of like a genie in the bottle. Um, And of course that, You know, there's studies and after study that show how that's a problem with our church, with with our youth in the church, uh, and so on. So,
1: well, the and 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 the idea. So, so I want to camp here just a little because this idea to me is so uh, relevant to Christians who are disenchanted with Christianity, Mm -hmm. and and and, um, so of course we lived, and, and I'm offering a very very simplistic explanation. Um, you know, when, when we didn't understand weather patterns, there were gods and goddesses and we didn't, right. you know, when we didn't understand space and gravity and all those sorts of things. So in one sense, losing our, the, the magic sort of magical view of the world is a good thing. Right. But in another sense, it's this, it's, it's cause, cause what I'm, what I'm missing, what, what people seem to be missing is they have all the appropriate furniture, they have the correct theology, they've been raised in the church community, um, and and I, and and so what I'm doing is I'm taking something that you're talking about, those who are pre-Christians or they're not yet in the kingdom. I, I want to apply it to like people who are in Christianity because I I see this disenchantment all over the place mm-hmm. in the church, right. And, um, and so the idea that, that there's this felt absence of God um, as a symptom of disenchantment, I thought was f- incredible. It was like, oh my goodness, that's it. That's what a lot of Christians are feeling. Right. Um, but, but you also say that there are two other things that describe culture today, Western culture today. So we're disenchanted, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then there are two other, other things you mentioned. Um, I'd love for you to go into those too.
0: Okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm trying to do a little cultural analysis in the book. And, and just to back up a little, uh, there's a, a a missionary named Leslie Newbegin who wrote a book. Um, he went off to India in the early 20th century to be a missionary from, sent from Great Britain. He spends 40 years in India, comes back to his sending country, Great Britain, realizes that his own country has become post-Christian, as he calls it, in the time that he's gone. And he realizes that he needs to have a missionary encounter with his own culture in the West. And so he writes a little book in the seventies called the foolishness to the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And in that he, on the first page, he asks this question, he says, what would be involved in a genuine missionary encounter between the gospel and the, and then he says this, the whole way of living perceiving and thinking that we call modern Western culture. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, I use that, those three words, what's the culture's dominant way of living dominant way of perceiving and dominant way of uh, thinking in our culture to kind of understand it. And so I've already mentioned our dominant way of perceiving, which is disenchanted. Um, The other two, then, what is our culture's dominant way of thinking? Uh, The word I use there is sensate. And what that means is that we're focused on the sensory. We're focused on the material. Uh, And so I love, um, sorry, I do do pull a lot from C.S. Lewis, but I love... uh, (laughs) In his book, The Screwtape Letters, the very first letter, you know, you have senior devil to junior devil. And he says this, he says, it's your business to fix their minds on the stream of experience. You know, he says, don't awaken the rational faculties because then they'll realize that they can win on their, you know, the enemy's terms. Right. But he says, uh, you know, keep them focused on the stream of experience. And that, that describes totally. our dominant mode of thinking, I think, in our culture. Yep. And then nope. the last, uh, the last one. What is our dominant way of living? And the word that I use there is very simple: is hedonism. And it's just this idea, again, no <laughs> surprise, right? That we go from you know one bite-sized packet of pleasure to another, right. and you know never satisfied, but always uh, seeking another episode. And so we become addicted to these little bite-sized, yep. bite-size packets of pleasure. So hedonism.
1: Where does where would you say in that three? Three word descriptor of of human life. Where does streaking fit in? Would you say that?
0: <laughs> yeah, I knew some kind of question was
1: coming. I, I think that's just good fun. That's just good fun. Right? That's just good. That's just good fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so how? I, I mean, I, I've, and the reason you quote Lewis so much, of course, is because he he did this. I mean, this cultural yeah. apologetics was his thing. That's right. I mean, he's par excellence as we say in the philosophy world, or maybe not. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that's interesting w- when you talk about you know, having a genuine missionary encounter, there was a study that came out, um, and it was like 47% of millennials, and again, I mean, stats, dude, but it's an in- yeah. interesting conversation point. 47% yeah. of millennials uh, agree that it is somewhat wrong to share your beliefs with another person uh, in the hope that they change their way of believing to your way of believing, hmm. and have you heard of this?
0: I have, mm-hmm.
1: and, um, mm. and, and and which is an interesting. So, so even the phrase a genuine missionary encounter, yeah, um, would would be objected to, right? That that's yeah. some sort of imperialistic um a way of looking at things that's right so so yeah what would you what would you say to somebody who who I, I would
0: say let's switch our language um
1: so okay so think of paul
0: at mars hill so this is acts chapter 17 he arrives Amazing. in athens and you know so he arrives at a culture different than his own and so you know christians today we are we are counterculture to the dominant you know ways of thinking in many ways So what did Paul do? Well, he boldly proclaims, he actually, what, actually he does three things. First, he identifies a starting point within his culture. So for him, it was, you know, all these altars to an unknown God. And then he builds a bridge from that starting point to Jesus and the gospel. And he does it brilliantly. I just invite you to look at Acts chapter 17. But then as you get to the end of the passage, he, he challenges them to repent of their old way of thought and to literally embrace a new way that is the Christian, the gospel. And so the language that I use in the book, so, so part, partly what I'm doing, remember how I said earlier that um, the ancients viewed the world in terms of wander and return back to God. Yep. I I think that the same could be true of culture. Like we, we, I explained the descriptive part, how we have wandered down to this sort of, how we've arrived at disenchantment, but part of the book is actually prescriptive or at least hopeful that we can join with God and the Holy Spirit to re-enchant the world. And the two steps that I talk about to get there are number one, that we need to join with God to awaken these deep longings of the human heart. But then secondly, is that we need to encourage people to return to reality. And so that, that would be the language I would push back then. If, if people don't like the idea of a missionary encounter, well, we need to invite people in love to return to reality. In other words, to locate their lives in the story that is actually the true story of the world, the only one that's alive and understands them and things like that. And so what I mean by that are two things, and then I'll stop. What do I mean by returning to reality are, number one, and this begins with us, that we would begin to see and delight in the world the same way Jesus sees and delights in the world. And then secondly, invite others to see and delight in the world the same way Jesus does. So mm-hmm. that, that's, that would be maybe how I would want to push back gently on the...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. Yeah, for sure, and and I and that that's an interesting invitation um, to invite people to see to to see the world and delight in it the way that Jesus did. That's mm-hmm. that's the reenchanting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Now let's talk about that. So if it's been if it's if it's been um, disenchanted, it can be reenchanted, correct? Yeah, we we can hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I find, and again, I I'm so sorry to talk a bit but this man this concept really wrecked me just personally hmm. because I look at all of the ways that I try to re-enchant my world on my own yeah so um i i love and i don't know why but i love there there's a there's a a part one of the disney parks in florida called epcot and they have this this back row of like 11 different countries that are represented with authentic food and clothes and people there. And for some reason I just absolutely find it enchanting. I really do. I just, I I love it, but it provokes some sort of weird melancholy in me yeah. uh, when I'm there. Uh, it, it's this weird, like scratching of an itch, but then it makes it itchier That's right. all, all at the same time. And, or like the Harry Potter yes. novels. I mean, I've read those man, maybe five or six times and I, so, so I find myself, and those are just two really dumb sort of pop culture examples, but I find myself trying to, and, and I think about, like, I see people at Disneyland who are lifers. I mean, they are there as often as they can be. Why? Right. And, and it's, yep. it's the, it's the what Disney's offering is the reenchantment of the world. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Keep
1: going. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm just setting you up for you to jump in at some point because, <laughs> because, well, no, no, just because it's so relevant to me. Like yeah. I find myself so disenchanted with my Christian life. Um, and I've been wrestling with how to re-enchant that. You know what yeah. I mean? As a Christian, let alone yeah. as somebody who's, you know, just kind of wandering around in a, in a um, sensate, uh, hedonistic sort of op- mode of yeah. operation in this world. Yeah. let me let me say something that
0: might sound a little controversial about it oh my really goodness that, and it, that it's, has and never it's not happened my
1: idea so that way
0: you know it's Jamie K Smith he's written a lot on um, our longings and how they focus but he said and I, I I've been thinking about this a lot he said the only Christianities that will have a future are those that re-enchant themselves mm. And I think he's right in that idea and, and so as Isaac is that it, Mike, why and
1: is that why Pentecostalism is the fastest growing could be version is it's So it's so eminent.
0: Yeah. Because God is fully, you know, there's this expectation that God is like present with us, you know, right. in the West, you know, we're, we're, there's all this empty space and God's somewhere out there beyond right. the universe, but that's not the way the world is. Right. God is fully present. I mean, you know, I'm holding, you can't see me, but I'm holding my hand right to my face. God's right present with <laughs> us now, you know, um, I've always but, preferred but your face that way. <laughs> here's the thing. Um, I, I believe that God has planted daily millions of signs for him. If we would only have eyes to see. And so your example of Epcot or or the foods and, and or Harry Potter, I think that these are actually, these are glimpses of, of this deeper reality and, and these longings of the heart. So I think of it this way. So, um, A philosopher named Peter Crave talks about how God has given us three prophets of the human soul. These prophets are the longing for goodness, truth, and beauty. And each of these prophets uh, has been given a guide. So reason is our guide on our quest toward truth the human quest toward truth. Uh, our conscience is our guide on the human quest toward goodness. And then the imagination is our guide on the human quest towards beauty. And then again, if we put our theology caps on, what is the source of goodness, truth, and beauty? Well, that the source is Christ. And I love how St. Augustine, he said that, of Jesus, he said, you are the beauty of all beautiful things and the good of all good things. And I would just add the truth to which all true things point. And so really, I, I think these these signs are meant to like you said to awaken this longing to set us on a journey but because of disenchantment we no longer see and so what re-enchantment the hope of re-enchanting is doing is that we would learn to see and enjoy the things around us as gift and then enjoy them in creaturely response that's the idea of re-enchanting and that can happen for anything right so c.s lewis which unlocked this for me in in a and an essay that's not well known at all called talking about bicycles mm-hmm. he talks. He was, he used the bicycle as this illustration of these four stages that pretty much we go through that, that everybody goes through with respect to everything. And so he talks about how as a child, you come into the world full of human gadgets and you're just unenchanted. Mm. But then he says, you know, as a young child, you get that first bike and the training wheels come off and you enter the second stage, you're enchanted, you know, life is, as it should be. Everything is, you know there's fullness of joy and effortless, and then and then he says pretty quickly, you know you get to that third stage, which is disenchantment, and with the bike, you know it becomes work and and he says it's like you know row rowing the oars in a galley slave you know, to the galley slave in the oars it's just' it's, it's it's work and it's it's disenchantment and Lewis says that every that we pretty much um, everyone stays in this third stage, but that we need to press through it and so when with respect to the bike that we would learn to enjoy that bike as gift, and enjoy, and enjoy it in creaturely response. And I think that's pretty much what um, we should learn to do with just about everything, mm-hmm. because it's all gifts.
1: You know, the, the, um, the Jews in the first century had this wonderful practice where they would pray blessings. They would bless God for the most mundane things. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, you know, there, there was a bl- And I've read the blessing about if you use the bathroom. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank, thanks be to you, O King of heaven and earth, for holes in our bodies. I mean, mm-hmm. it, and and there was a sense. Of course, that can become rote, m- mundane, and boring, but it was at least an attempt to yeah. receive every every bit of human life as 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 you say as gift, and then the response should be thankfulness or worship or trust or obedience right. or whatever it is. Yep. Um and and so part of the cultural apologetic project uh, seems to be this calling people back to mm-hmm. a re-enchanted world. Um and and doing that you say in awaken we awaken desire. So like does that is that art is that music? I mean what what is how do we partner with God to reawaken desire when many of us, you know, feel <laughs> Uh, kind of the death of desire in ourselves,
0: yeah, well, I think disenchantment has um, suppressed our desires our especially those deep seated longings, and the deep seated longings i 'm thinking of are these deep seated longings for truth goodness, and beauty
1: we 've traded we 've traded those for superficial uh, the superficial yeah. the the pleasure of an orgasm or of a meal or That's of right. a a dopamine hit from a uh, social media. Right. Okay.
0: Which are of course, you know, well, yeah, I mean, there's pleasure. Pleasure of course is something we own, right? It's, it's uh, you know, the, the devil can't create any pleasure of it, their own, right? They just right. can steal from, from, from God and then misdirect it. But screw um, tape letters. That's right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So
1: um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You threw, you threw me off there. I'm yeah. so sorry.
0: Uh, so your question was, how right. can, okay, so how do we awaken? So the, the, yeah, the idea that I try to unpack in the book is that we actually have three ways to join with God to awaken longing. Because again, they're there, right? Think of that right. inverted triangle. They're, they're part of what it means to be human. Yep. And so I think that we do awaken longing. Through giving reasons for our faith, right? Because we long for truth, and so the tradition—what would maybe be understood as traditional apologetics—is vital to cultural apologetics. We've got to give arguments, we've got to give reasons, and of course, I think we can do that in a more creative way. But we've got to do that. Um, The other ways, though, that we can join with God that are less developed—that I focus on equally as much in the book—are what I call um, uh, the the way of morality. And it's just simply asking this question, what is it that you, that you want most deeply? And if you ask them, you know, what, what is it that you want? Most people are going to say, I just want to be what? Happy. Happy. Right. Okay. Well, what's interesting about that is we we all want to be happy, but yet notice two things about it. None of us are. And yet, <laughs> and, and, and we can't figure out how to get there on our own. Right. I, I think that's instructive of, um, that, that helps us because that sets us on a journey where we can ultimately find uh, true happiness uh, in God, and so we we awaken this longing by just probing the probing the the texture uh, of this longing for for happiness or goodness mm-hmm. um, and actually i I unpack the longing for goodness as three sub longings: we long to be whole right we don 't want to be fragmented people right. We long for justice. We want to see things made right. And then the third thing is what you talked about with your Luke Skywalker thing at age nine. You know, you, mm-hmm. we long for significance, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's part of this longing for goodness. And so we can awaken those. And of course, notice, which gets to the third one, story, the imagination mm-hmm. unpacks. Yeah. Yep. Especially, you know, I, I mean, I resonated with your idea of Luke Skywalker staring out at the binary stars there because he's longing for a life that matters. Mm. That's everybody 's longing so so the, the third way that we awake, join with God is to awaken longing is through the way of what I call imagination, and that 's exactly like you said it 's using art and story and music and poetry and dance and, and beauty to awaken. The longing for the for the actual source of beauty which is which is jesus christ
1: but the but the church has been so opposed to those things at least and again, I'm generalizing, yeah, but I would say in broad swaths, the church has been opposed to the use of art and beauty, yeah. right church buildings are very sterile, uh and imagination is scary <laughs> yeah yep. right that's new age or whatever it is well.
0: Yeah but so it's interesting um you're right the the beauty beauty is an exile in the church right um yeah. everywhere else our culture gets it our culture totally gets beauty yeah. In fact, I would say beauty is held captive to our culture, and it's it's used to fleece our wallets often, especially you know with the struggles that many men have with pornography, for example, or things like that. But even just you know the constant push toward image. Um, but we own beauty, right? And and you're right. Uh, I mean, I can remember sitting in a church speaking, and it was one of these multi-purpose rooms, right? With great walls. It's like, and I just made the comment you know, if we were sitting in a room that was, that had, you know, stone um, pillars, you know, our experience, our embodied experience of this moment would be much different. Mm. And so, but because as evangelicals are in general, I think in America, we, we tend to be very pragmatic. And so we're, mm. we're concerned with efficiency and bottom lines and, you know, the metrics, the, 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 the metrics of baptisms or gospel presentations, of course, which are all, all which are for happiness, for enchantment, Um, all of these things. And so, yeah, um, I'm encouraged that I see signs of life where Christians and churches are awakening to the importance of beauty in the life. But I think in many ways, number one, this is the most underutilized aspect of apologetics. But number two, in, in our day and age, given disenchantment, it could be one of the most strategic is to awaken people's longings. I mean, you mentioned Harry Potter through story. What yeah. is it about Harry Potter that you're drawn to? Well, I would argue you're drawn to those things that are part of the true story of the world, you know, the gospel. Nice. Um, and, and so these stories awaken within us this longing for uh, the, the actual story mm-hmm. uh, that is the true story of the world, which is the gospel.
1: So so, um, so let's say, and let's just talk very practically for a second. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk to some people in, in our listening audience who are feeling disenchanted uh, with it? And, I, and I'm sorry, I keep coming back to this, but it's so it's such a compelling picture to me. Yeah, uh, they feel disenchanted it, within Christianity, right? They have the pieces of theological furniture set, but God just doesn't seem real. He, he he is he feels absent. People are disillusioned. So how do we how do we re-enchant the Christian faith from within it?
0: Yeah. Oh, big question. Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I and I have thoughts, Yeah. but no one's me, paying to hear my thoughts, Gouldy. <laughs>
0: well, let me give you five ideas then. How about that? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay, uh, number one is you've got to re-enter the world of Bible of the Bible and, and on its own terms. Oh,
1: because- now hold on a second. What do you mean Uh-oh. by that, Gouldy? <laughs>
0: well, I, I what I mean is just you know let's enter into the world of the Bible, um, and and what you find there is this world full of deep drama and intrigue and toil and beauty, um, you know, where, where God is, is passionately pursuing us. Yet it's, it's a world that's not tame, right? It's a world where we're vulnerable. We can't mm-hmm. buffer ourselves from deity or from the our own moral failures. And so enter into the Bible um, on its own terms. there you love and pursuit who's way better than you think.
1: Say, actually. okay, say um, that, the more say that. that. You
0: get to know the, the world of the Bible.
1: Say that, again. Say that again. Yeah, cut. We come into the Bible on its own terms, and then you went into what that means, and we missed it.
0: Did I cut out? Oh, sorry about that. No, yeah, no just, worries. You find, a, you, find, um, you find a world that is not tame, number one. You know, yep. We can't buffer ourselves from... Deity, we can't buffer ourselves from the ravages of the worlds, yet you find a good God who's active in the li- the history of the world and in the lives of his people mm. and who lovingly pursues us. And so it's this greatest possible story, actually. And so enter into that story and you will find partly re-enchantment because it's a it's a story, because there's so many competing mm. stories in our world, and they're all vying for our allegiance. I know you wrote a book on this, Mike, right?
1: Oh no, hold um, on, on a see, second. There you go.
0: It, but all of these stories are inviting our participation, and, and so I would just ask yourself: Is there a story that understands? And, and, and what you find is that the gospel story understands the deep longings of the heart, and we find life in there because we find the Giver of life. Yeah. So that's the first thing I would say. Okay. Secondly, I would say uh, I've always is, is look for God um, actively working in your life and in the lives of those around you. So I've always been struck with um, Peter and John in Acts three; they're walking to the temple. This guy uh, is sitting, a, a cripple is sitting there and asks them for money. And Peter immediately stops, looks at him. They don't give him money, but, but he, heals the, he heals the man because Peter was actively looking for God at work in his life and in the lives of those around him. And but that's the kind of God that, that there actually is, right? God is an active God. And so we begin to cultivate the habit of looking for him in our own lives. And so for uh, practically what i ask my kids every day, and they get a little annoyed um, is, you know, how have you seen the fingerprint of God in your life today? Hmm. And, you know, they'll give answers like, well, I had fun in science class or, or something. And, you know, we're, <laughs> as a parent, you're like, well, that's kind of a lame answer. But you know what? The hope is that yeah. eventually they'll ask that question at a deeper level and actually see that God totally. is active in their lives and cares for them. Should I, do you have something to say or should I keep going?
1: No, no, dude. We're on number two. You got three more. Okay, three.
0: Um, re- so here's, so here's a, I am a professor at heart. So here's a challenge. Read. <laughs> Authors, and I'm thinking of theology and philosophy that hail from a more enchanted age, right? Mm-hmm. So 500 years ago, just about everybody viewed the world as, as a sacrament, as, as sacred, as enchanted. Mm-hmm. And so read Augustine or Athanasius or Boethius. If you don't know who these people are, look them up. You know, I would say, actually, I would say, why don't you start with Augustine's Confessions? Because you get all the juicy Hollywood tidbits of a, of a you know, a, 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 a kid that's into sex and and and, and beauty, uh, but then he has this encounter with the divine, and his life changes. So read Augustine's Confessions to, to see what people looked at the world like from a time when things were more enchanted. Yeah. Uh, fourth, I, so this is again might sound provocative, but um, look to the artist in our own day and age that can help us see the world in its proper light, hmm. and so. I think that artists today. Pearl Jam,
1: you're saying like Pearl Jam. Uh, I mean, clearly,
0: Pearl Jam, clearly, and whatever else you listen to now, like, um, you know. But uh, artists help us see reality in its proper light, and they, in some ways, they pull back. They, they give us they pull back the curtain, and they give us a glimpse of reality as it is. And so, I'm thinking of artists like well, I'm thinking of literature now, but you can expand this to other forms. Um, people like Wendell Berry or Marilyn Robinson or mm. even C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien. Um, these are people that, that will help re-enchant the world. So for example, Tolkien, he wrote a little essay called an essay on fairy stories. And he said that there's a kind of escape that might be heroic um, into these secondary worlds of fiction. And he says they're heroic because this world is painful enough, right? And and so if we can enter into stories and find consolation and recovery in them, in these secondary worlds of fiction. Well, then we come back into the primary world when we put the book down or turn off your Netflix binge, if that works, <laughs> um, and, uh, but we find recovery. And so I would say, look for those authors, or mm. even shows, or, or other forms of art, poetry, dance, music, and so on. And then, is um, that four? So number five, uh, bring beauty back into your life. And so in everything that you do, do it with beauty in mind. Whether it's making an omelet or a tweet or a PowerPoint or whatever, laying, <laughs> you're mowing your lawn. Do it with beauty in mind, and and I guess just learn to cultivate um, the habit of getting out in nature, you know, or, yeah. or noticing the beauty of a. If you have kids, when you go take them to baseball, the beauty of a of a of a swing of a baseball bat, or if you go to a dance, uh, you know the, the sublimity of a dance move or things like that. So if you cultivate beauty. Um, the habit of looking for beauty yeah. around you—well, that'll help reenchant your world. So, how's that? Is that a good start?
1: That's a great start. And speaking of looking for beauty, uh, I have a calendar out, and uh, you can <laughs> you can go on to mikeerey.calendar.org, and um, you'll. Particularly... I don't know
0: if you're going to find <laughs> consolation in that <laughs> might not
1: be You need to particularly look at February. February is a really good month. <laughs> Is that the streaking month? <laughs> no, I just had to get one of those big, like, Lexus car bows to kind of – so it's it's me and a bow, and that's all I'm going to say about it. Um, that's a great image. Thank you for that. <laughs> hey, we're re-enchanting the world, baby. <laughs> all right. So, Gouldy, great work, man. I'm so proud of you, and and really, um, the, the one thing – like. I, I uh, like cultural apologetics. I like the term and I like the concept, but I I was like I was a, just a little bummed we didn't have like kind of a more beautiful title, um, yeah. yeah. Just because, and that's why I wanted to have you on was to explain this is a much richer, uh, deeper, and I think uh, a more compelling way uh, to speak into the world about what Jesus is like than uh, a, what what a lot of us have kind of grown up hearing and doing. And uh, so it's, it's called Cultural Apologetics, Paul Gould, G-O-U-L-D. Um, and, then, and then you're the founder of something called the Two Tasks Institute. Tell us just a bit about that and where people can find you online.
0: Yeah, so the Institute.org, You can find uh, that online if you Google it. And that's uh, a group of friends and I have got together. And basically, we're just asking this question. How can we show Christianity reasonable? That's task number one course super important but then how can we show christianity desirable as well yeah. that it's both true to the way the world is and true to the way the world ought to be and so we're, we're i would encourage you to like us on facebook or follow us on social media twitter instagram um we'll be we have a podcast that uh we have season one has already been released it's on Boom. cultural apologetics and actually there'll be a, a little a book coming out a little primer on cultural bo- apologetics mm. that is a transcript that's been edited from season one that'll come out in another month or so. Does, it, does that count as, well. as book three? I, uh, well, Courtney, my co-host and I did it together. So it's an edited okay. co-author. We'll Okay. Call it. All right. Um, and then, so there's another, uh, season two is going to drop later this month. It's on the virtues and the vices in a disenchanted world. Whoa. Um, but we've got videos that are being produced and we've got materials and we've got uh, study guides. If you want to have your small groups, um, think and wrestle with this question of how do we reenchant ourselves and work mm-hmm. with God to re-enchant the world. We've got resources that we'll be rolling out on the next uh, you know weeks to come. So nice. yeah, check us out at 2Tasks.org. Awesome.org.
1: Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Two Tasksinstitute.org. Paul freaking Gould. Oh, so fun, dude. Uh, and so Voxers, thank you for tuning in as always. Grateful for you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give us peace. Thank you, friends. Till next time.